is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's pray. Thank you again, Heavenly Father, for your word, and we ask that you, by your spirits, might speak to us through this very familiar story and passage. We pray that you will not only give us perhaps new insight, but most of all, that you'll give us truth for life. Help us to listen and to respond, that we might walk in obedience to you. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said? I've got my phone with me, so every now and again I can push the button to see what time it is. Don't ring me, don't text me. Now that I've planted that idea in your brain... This is a story in Matthew's Gospel about responses to the King. It's part of the whole theme of unwrapping Christmas. So I want to tell you that story this morning. I know uh, you're familiar with much of it. And at the end, you'll have a response to make, a choice to make. Let's begin. Uh, it starts, the story of Christmas begins in Nazareth. There are lots of families living up in Nazareth, in Galilee, up in the north of Israel. Jacob who's living in Nazareth, has a son called Joseph. He grew up there, he went to school there more than likely, and he was a trained carpenter, as all Jewish boys had a trade. Heli was also another citizen of Nazareth, and he had a daughter, Mary. She would not have had a trade, nor would she have been sent to school. She would have been uneducated, as girls were in those days, and she would have learnt domestic duties from her mum. The families got together and they arranged a marriage between Joseph and Mary. That was normal. 
he was probably in his late teens and she was probably in her early teens, but we don't know the exact times. That was normal. During that 12-month engagement, espousal period, when Joseph has gone off and he's building a residence, he's building a home so that he can return to collect his wife and then start their new married life in the new family home. While he's doing that, Mary has a visit from an angel whose name is Gabriel. Nice name. The angel tells her that she is to become pregnant by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. She will have a son and she is to call him the name Jesus. He's the Messiah. She submits remarkably and accepts this assignment. Mary leaves almost immediately and travels south to another Judean place, village, where she's visiting her relative Elizabeth, who was now six months pregnant in her senior years. And she will have her first child and his name is the baptizer. While Mary is away, Joseph has probably completed the house. Mary returns to Nazareth. John has been born, is my guess. And then Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant. Discovers it. Seems to imply that she didn't tell him. He discovers it. He's devastated. He wrestles with what is he going to do? He opts for, because he is a righteous follower, he's a godly man who was always, always wants to do what God's will is for his life. He decides, I have to divorce her, I have to separate myself from her. I can do that publicly, I can do that privately, secretly, privately. He opts for the more gracious, private one. And then he, one night, having decided that's what he's going to do, receives a visit from an angel who tells him the truth that Mary has not misbehaved, that this is a miracle from God himself, from the Holy Spirit, and he wakes up the next day and he marries her immediately, takes her to the new family home. When you know what God's will is, you need to do it straight away, don't you? It's one lesson. By this time now, news of Augustus's decree to tax the entire Roman Empire arrives, which now requires Joseph to travel to Bethlehem. Takes Mary with him. On their arrival at the accommodation, all the accommodation has been taken and they find shelter somewhere among some animals. Whether it's in a stable or a cave or a house out the back, we don't know. We just know there is a manger present. The baby is born. She, not him, wraps Jesus in strips of cloth and lays him in a manger. We don't know that there are any midwives. They are certainly not mentioned. But it's interesting how God is at work in our world. God has arranged the circumstances that through the central government in Rome, his son is to be born in the very place where God said it would happen 600 years beforehand. God works through governments. Two things then happen. Baby is born. What's the date? December 25th. Everybody knows that. Come on. Yeah, we don't know. Two things happen in the sky. There is a suddenly a bright new star, a bright light. A star appears in the sky. Matthew tells us about that. Uh, we won't talk too much about that star. But there is then something else happens in the sky. What else happens in the sky that night? Angels go and visit some shepherds. And Luke tells us about them. And I want to come back to them at the end and maybe contrast what we talk about the wise men and the shepherds. So the shepherds go off, they visit Mary, you know that. 
And they are the ones who find Jesus in the manger. The wise men don't. They return to the fields. Mary and Joseph stay in Bethlehem. Forty days pass. And now on the 40th day, Mary and Joseph take Jesus up to Jerusalem for the offering which has to be offered after the birth of a child. And because they are poor, hence the wise men have not arrived yet. They don't have the gold, the incense or the myrrh. Because they are poor, they offer two birds, two doves or pigeons for a burnt offering and a peace offering, just like the law commanded. Then they don't return home to Nazareth. They go back to Bethlehem because that's where the wise men will find them. Why are they residing and staying in Bethlehem? We are not told. But now Jesus is certainly a couple of months old and maybe more than that. And so we come to this story that Lyndall read to us very well this morning from Matthew chapter 2. There's nothing in Matthew chapter 2 about Jesus, not to describe him anyway. It all revolves around prophecies that he fulfills that are about him. Matthew's purpose, I think, in writing chapter 2 is he has structured the story to emphasise the responses that people made to the Messiah when he came into the world. What sort of reception did he have from Jews, from Gentiles, from the rich, from the poor? That's what we're going to look at. Maybe three responses very quickly. First response. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea and the stars appeared in the sky, Magi from the east arrive in Jerusalem. They ask, where is he? We saw his star when it rose. We want to worship him. We don't know a lot about these people, though that hasn't stopped the church or historians or very creative preachers over the years. Um, what do we know about them? Well, we know they came from the east, then we know they saw a star, and then we know they came to worship him. That's it. Short sermon this morning. We don't know technically their identity or their specific job. They're called Magi. What were Magi? Well, it's a broad range of options. I like the one that talks about them certainly as being interpreters of dreams and of astronomy, students, scientists of the stars, they were reading the stars, that fits with the story. Uh, but the Magi through history were also a priestly caste in Babylon and they were also in the Senate. They became kingmakers is one of the titles that they have. Either way, these men appear to be good and holy men who are certainly seekers after truth. What country did they come from? Don't know. From the east. We don't know where from the east. Best guess is Babylon, because that's where Daniel was, and there was still a Jewish settlement there, and they had all of the prophecies, and these guys appeared to be students, scientists, um, scholars, and they're putting everything together. But there are other older opinions where they came from Arabia, something from Persia, some even say from India, maybe Bangladesh, Graham. I'm sure. Wise men. Bangladesh, wise men. Some say China. Some people say from different countries. But the Bible says, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 12, they came from one country because they returned to their country. So wherever they came from, they came together. What was their status? Were they kings? Well, the hymn writer says so. We three kings of Oriental. Tradition says they were kings. 
we don't know that they were kings. It certainly goes back to a church father called Tertullian back in AD 228, 225. He called them that. There are certainly some Old Testament allusions to kings coming, but it's a bit, the reality is we don't know. How many were there? Everybody knows this. Three. And we don't know that either, do we? And we say there were three because? Three gifts. What were their names? Oh, you don't know? Oh, we do know. Their names are Melchior, Balthazar and Gaspar. Didn't you know that? Oh, yeah, yeah, 12th century, we got that. In fact, a bishop from the 12th century claims he found their skulls. Wise men engraved on it, I guess. <laughs> and you can go to, where can you go? St. Sophia in Constantinople, then it was transferred to Milan. Now it's in a cathedral in Cologne in Germany. You can go and see their skulls, apparently. What did they ride? Don't know. Could have been camels. Could have been horses. Were they kings? Did they come alone? Were they royalty? Did they have servants? Did they have guards? They came with wealth. That's unlikely that they came alone. When did they come? What year? We don't know. They came after the star appeared and before Herod died. That's what we know. When did Herod die? Well... Yeah, it's disputed. Conservative guess is 4 BC. That's even questioned now. But let's assume 4 BC to be accurate. Well, they came then at least a year and maybe a couple of years before that. All of this is very interesting. And it reminds us, please teach your children the truth, that the nativity scene is wrong. Unless you are using a great deal of poetic license, saying symbolically the wise men came to see baby Jesus, but he wasn't in a manger when they came. The Bible says when he came, he wasn't a baby, he was a child, and he wasn't in a manger, he was in a house. Time had passed. He's now, who knows, a year old? When the wise men turn up in Jerusalem, Herod gives them a personal invitation to, and he inquires from them, what time did the star appear? 9th of September, 7 BC, they said. Who knows what they said. They gave a date, they gave a time. And he calculated from that, he said, now you go and find him, worship him, come back and tell me, ha ha, I want to go and worship him too. And then they didn't come back, and so Herod calculates from that time that he was given. And he gives an instruction, which is to kill every boy in Bethlehem who is our old. So has two years passed? Maybe. Or is it typical of Herod in his senior years where he's gone quite paranoid and senile and quite cruel, that he knows that um, that was the date, so they'd said, so does he double it? So like 12 months has gone by? And just to make doubly sure, he doubles it. That wouldn't be beyond him. But again, we're not given those details because we don't really need to know that sort of stuff. They came to Jerusalem because they saw his star and they concluded, well, Jerusalem is the capital of Jerusalem. President Trump said so this way. That's where the temple was, where the palace was. So that's why they went there. City of about 300 acres and a population of about 250,000, according to historians and others. So these men arrive in Jerusalem, following, not following his star. They see his star appear, and then it goes. 
And then they say, that's the star of the king of Israel. We're going to Jerusalem. And off they go. How long did the journey take? Don't know. A while. When they get to Jerusalem, where is he? They, they assume everybody would know where the new king was. And you know the story. Herod's disturbed by it. And then they are directed by the scriptures. No, no, you need to go to Bethlehem, which is about six miles south. Off they go. Wise men who arrived late, went to the wrong place and bought weird gifts. Somebody has asked the question, what if they were wise women? How would things have been different? Well, probably the wise women would ask for directions. They would have arrived on time, probably bought a casserole. He would have still been in the stable, so they would have helped clean the stable, would have helped with the delivery, and they would have bought practical gifts. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says they were wise men. Not wise in intelligence. Wise in they had some understanding. They, they got it. They had an insight into something. That star connected the dots for them, that he was the king. They knew who he was. And they bring their gifts accordingly to reflect that understanding. They come to worship him. Very quickly, somebody has worked this out and it's worth sharing with you. Why were the wise men wise? Well, because number one, they seek Jesus. That's a wise thing to do. They ask questions, they study the Bible. They're willing to search and to find out answers. They're wise because they're willing to go to any length to find out the truth. They're wise because they don't stop till they find Jesus. I wonder if they were shocked when they found him. Here is this young child, what, 12 months don't know, around that 18 months, <clears throat> who was poor. I wonder if they were shocked. It's not what they expected. The king. But they understand. They have insight. They still worship him. They still present these remarkable gifts. They came for the right reason, to show their gratitude and honour and so on. And they're wise because they gave Jesus the best that they had to offer. That's wise. Here are grown men worshipping a baby. Here are rich men worshipping a poor baby. Here are Gentile men worshipping a Jewish baby. Truth for us, when you see Jesus and understand who he is, and nothing else matters. He is the most important. He is worthy of our best. Not our leftovers, not our trivial leftover time or anything else. It's whatever we have that we can offer, he is worthy of it. And their gifts, in fact, reflect some insights. Gold, frankincense and myrrh. One of the things I love about Christmas are the infant plays and infant videos and infant interviews that go on and to get kids' insight into it. And if I can do it, I saw one the other day, if I can do it, then we'll show it in a couple of weeks. It's just a terrific retake and answers many of our questions we have about Christmas. <clears throat> There was this little infant play, this is just an aside, where um, this um, kids in the play uh, had to bring gifts. And the first one brings his gift out. Here's some gold. Third, the second kid brings his gift out. Here's some moon. And the third kid couldn't remember what his was called. And it dawned on him. 
Oh, Frank said this. <laughs> Kids. Well, these gifts they gave were certainly expensive gifts. Gold, frankincense, a fragrance, and myrrh, a sap, a perfume, spice. All of those could have been sold for their trip when they were going to Egypt. Did you ever think about that? So it's, it is practical. It's a providential gift. It's God is resourcing this very poor family for a lengthy stay down in Egypt. But more importantly, I think it's a symbolic gift. The gold reminds us that he is the king. Gold reflects kingship. It's a tribute to him that he is the one who comes to rule. And as they bow before him and worship him, they are really submitting to him. They're saying, we want to come under your rule, under your authority. We want you to reign in our lives. We acknowledge you to be our Lord. That's what the gift meant. The frankincense was an incense which was burnt in the temple. It was to do with the priest would use it for prayer. It's a reminder to us that this child is in fact our high priest who will offer prayers, who will intercede for us has that sort of attachment to it, communication. And then myrrh, of course, is for the purposes of burial, embalming the dead. This king came to die. And they seem to have understood that. Maybe they didn't understand it. But I think Matthew wants us to understand it. Note the order too. They seek him and those who seek him find him. Those who find him, worship him. And those who worship him will consecrate their best to him. There's the pattern for us, to seek him, to find him. If you found him, to worship him and to give him your best. And then those like these wise men who submit to him will experience divine promptings and lead in your life to both protect you as well as to direct you. And it was just a very simple nudge. There was no fanfare. It was in a dream. Don't go back to Herod. Because Herod had said, go find the child. When you find him, report back to me. You come back to me. Was he going to arrest him? Was he going to kill him? Don't go back to Herod. And so in obedience to that prompting from God, they go their own way. The wise men. That's the first response. Second response. Herod. Very quickly. Herod's response is one of complete self-interest. He's troubled, he's anxious, he's paranoid. He's threatened by the coming of Jesus. He doesn't want any rivals to his throne. He doesn't want any competition with him being in control with his life. That's certainly demonstrated in his life historically. Like some of us, perhaps, we want to be the proverbial king of our life. We want to be in charge. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want anybody else having authority over us. That's Herod. No interest in Jesus at all. In fact, annoyance or rejection of his rulership. That's Herod. We could go on and on, but we won't. Third response. The indifference of the scribes. Herod summons these Bible scholars. Where is the, the Messiah to be born? They know immediately. In Bethlehem in Judea. That's what the prophet says. Quotes Micah. Out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
They tell Herod, Herod tells them, what do they do? Absolutely nothing. Why are you asking? They would have heard the rumours of these wise men arriving in town, talking about the arrival of the king. They made no effort, it would appear. One hour's walk away, six miles south, and they didn't even bother to check it out. They had knowledge, but also they probably had very busy lives. They had the scriptures to inform them, but they were just apathetic or indifferent to it. They were setting their own agenda, a little bit like Herod, in their own way. They knew the prophecies, but they were blind to the spiritual realities, had knowledge with no desire to do anything with it, but glad to have it. Here's a rather lengthy quote from one preacher. How many of you, you would say that you're disinterested in Jesus? Your life and your days and your mind consumed by other things. Your health, your job, your relationships, your well-being, your security, your appearance, your whatever. And you're disinterested in Jesus. You may know some facts about him, some Bible teaching. You may even be able to quote some Bible verses, pass the quiz of all those questions we ask one another at Christmas time. But you're not compelled to pursue him. You're not going to be inconvenienced by him. You're not going seeking and searching to be closer to him. You're disinterested. So for these scribes, Jesus is nothing else than a theological idea, not a person and a relationship. It's all about knowing facts, not about knowing a person and desiring to meet them and know them and to follow them. Contrasting responses Matthew presents for us. The hostility, if you like, of Herod, the indifference of the scribes, but the welcoming and the worshipping of the wise men and of the shepherds that Luke will tell us about. They're typical responses that will be evident all the way through Jesus' life and ministry all through the Gospels. For Matthew, Herod, the usurper king, contrasts with Jesus, the righteous king. The Magi, who travelled a great distance to come and visit Jesus, compared to the short distance Israel leaders wouldn't even travel. The genuine worship of the Magi when they got there compared the feigned worship of Herod, or the lack of worship of the scribes. The Magi's responsiveness to divine promptings, guidance, And the unresponsiveness, again, of the scribes to God's word. What's your response? What's the state of your heart this Christmas season? Annoyed, angry, preoccupied, no desire to know God or his will, just to be left alone, just going through the routine, like Herod. Maybe apathetic, indifferent, paying lip service, but again, no real focus upon a relationship with Jesus. Or is it accepting Jesus and adoring him, pursuing him, serving him, obeying him? That's where you're at. That's certainly the best one, the best place to be in. To accept and to unwrap the whole point of this Christmas season. God coming into our life. And just very quickly, in a couple of minutes, note the contrast between the shepherds that Luke gives to us and the wise men that Matthew gives us. The shepherds came from a very low socioeconomic background perspective. 
They were looked down upon by society. They were the outcasts at that point in history. The wise men came probably from the higher echelons of society. They came from influence. They were admitted to the palace of Herod and had an audience with him. The shepherds were poor. They had nothing. Work for them was an absolute necessity and it was day-by-day existence. They didn't bring any gifts because they didn't have any gifts. Wise men, on the other hand, are rich. Men of substance and wealth. They can afford to take a long journey and they can afford to give expensive gifts. And they do. In terms of education, probably the shepherds had very limited, if any, education. And there's certainly no formal education. Contrasting with the wise men, they were very well educated. They were the professors of the ancient world. In terms of location, the shepherds were close. They didn't have very far to go at all, just over the hill. The wise men, great distance, somewhere from the east, took months, maybe a year. Jesus is for both. For the low and the high, the poor and the rich, the educated and the uneducated. For those who are close and for those who are far away. He's for everyone. Whatever you've done, he's for you. He's the saviour of the world. It's a great truth. Both groups obeyed what indications God gave them. They didn't offer up excuses. Think about the wise men. They could have said, the star has appeared announcing the birth of the king in Judea. But we might be wrong. Might be misreading the signs. Jerusalem is a long way. Uh, Others will be paying their respects. We don't need to go. They could have offered excuses. Many people do. What about the shepherds? Not far away, this magnificent angelic choir directed by the angel to go, we're not dressed for the occasion. We've got nothing to bring. Who's going to look after the sheep? Have you responded to the invitation of Jesus? Have you obeyed God's summons? What's your response? Don't be like Herod or the scribes. Don't be in that category. Oh, you know it. It needs to drop 18 inches, 45 centimetres down to here. A heartfelt response of I know and I want to be like the wise men, like the shepherds. I want to give my life to him. I want to give my best to him. I want to follow him. And then we, like them, the wise men and the shepherds, they returned to their occupations. They went back to their countries. They went back to their job. And they told people what they had experienced. So let us. Let's return to our places and homes and works and let us tell others what we have experienced. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending Jesus. Thank you that you can communicate to wise men in a distant land through the heavens, through a star, that you can direct them, and then even through people who have knowledge but no heart in it, can even direct them to the very Saviour himself. So we pray, Lord, you'd do it again. Help people who are far from you. Help them to respond to the signs 
that are all around them this Christmas season. Help people tonight at the carols to respond to the truth of what you have done in the person of Jesus. Don't just give us head knowledge, but Lord, help us soften hearts and help us to be responsive, submissive, obedient, and totally sold out to giving Jesus our best. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your patience to us. Empower us and use us to go and tell others for his sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.